Section 8 of All Afloat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. All Afloat, a Chronicle of Craft and Waterways by William Wood. Sailing Craft, Fit to Go Foreign, Part 2. The labor is lightened, as hand labor always has been lightened, by singing to the rhythm of the work. The seamen's working songs are shanties, a kind of homespun poetry which, once heard to its rolling music and the sound of wind and wave, will always bring back the very savor of the sea wherever it is heard again. There are thousands of shanties in scores of languages which, like the men who sing them, have met and mingled all round the world. They are the folklore of a class apart, which differs as landsmen differ in ways and speech and racial ambition, but which is also drawn together, as landsmen never have been, by that strange blend of strife and communing with man and nature which is only known at sea. They will not bear quotation in cold print, where they are as pitiably out of place as an albatross on deck. No mere reader can feel the stir of that grand old chanty, Hurrah, my boys, we're homeward bound! unless he has heard it, when all hands make sail on leaving port and the deck begins pulsating with the first throb of the swell that sets in landward across the bar. And what can this chorus really mean to anyone who has never heard it roared by strong male voices to the running accompaniment of seething water overside? What ho, Piper, watch her how she goes. Give her sheet and let her rip. We're the boys to pull her through. You ought to see her rolling home, for she's the gal to go in the passage home in ninety days from california but though you can no more wrest a shanty from its surroundings and then pass it off as a seaman's folk-song than you can take the blue from the water or the crimson from the sunset yet as some shanties have become so well known ashore as others so richly deserve to be known there and as all are now being threatened with extinction perhaps a few may be mentioned in passing away for rio with its wild, queer wail in the middle of its full-toned chorus, has always been a great favorite afloat. For we're bound for Rio Grande, and away, Rio, I, Rio, sing fare ye well, my bonny young girl, we're bound for Rio Grande. The Wide Missouri is a magnificent song for baritones and basses on the water. Oh, Shenandoah, I love your daughter. Way ho the rolling river. Oh, Shenandoah, I long to hear you. Way, ho, we're bound away, down the broad Missouri. A famous capstan shanty is well known on land whence, indeed, it originally came. And it's hame, dearie, hame, oh, it's hame I want to be. My topsails are hoisted and I must out to sea. But the oak and the ash and the bonny birch and tree, they're all a-growin' green in the north country. Which is quite as appropriate to the Nova Scotia as to the one beyond the North Atlantic. A favorite sail-setting shanty is, sung solo, haul on the bowlin, the fore and main-top bowlin, and the chorus, haul on the bowlin, the bowlin haul. A good pumping-out shanty after a storm is, sung solo, old storm has heard the angel call, and chorus, to my eye, old storm along. Reuben Ranzo is a grand one for a good long haul. The chorus comes after every line, striking like a squall with a regular roar on the first word, Ranzo. Sung solo, Hurrah for Reuben Ranzo! Chorus, Ranzo, boys, Ranzo! Ranzo's progress from a lubberly tailor to a good smart sailor is then related with infinite variations, but always with the same gusto. Ranzo is only really popular afloat, but Blow the Man Down is a universal favorite. Sung solo, 
Blow the man down, blow the man down. Chorus. Way ho, blow the man down. Solo. Blow the man down from Liverpool town. Chorus. Give us some wind to blow the man down. When every sail is set and every stitch is drawing, there is no finer sight the sea can show. The towering mass, the canvas gleaming white, with its lines of curving beauty drawn by the touch of the wind, the whole ship bounding forward as if just slipped from her leash. All this makes a scene to stir the beholder then and forever after. The breeze pipes up. She's doing ten knots now, eleven, twelve, and later on fifteen. This puts the lee rail under, for she lays over on her side so far that her deck is at a slope of forty-five. Her forefoot cuts through the water like the slash of a scimitar, while her bows throw out only two seething waves, the windward one of which breaks into volleying spray atop and rattles down like hailstones on the foredeck. But next day the wind has hauled ahead, and she has to make her way by tacking. She loses as little as possible on her zigzag course by sailing close to the wind, that is, by pointing as nearly into it as she can while still keeping a full-on every working sail. Presently the skipper, having gone as far to one side of his straight course as he thinks proper, gives the caution, whereupon the braces are taken off the pins and coiled down on deck, all clear for running, while the spanker boom is hauled in amidships so that the spanker may feel the wind and press the stern a lee, which helps the bow to windward. Then the old man, called so whatever his age may be, sings out at the top of his voice, Ready, yo! The helm is eased down on his signal so as not to lose way suddenly. When it is quite down, he shouts again, Helms a lee! On which the fore and head sheets, holding the sails attached to the foremast and bowsprit, are let go and overhauled. The vessel swings round, the spanker pressing her stern in one direction, and the sails at the bows offering very little resistance now their sheets are let go. The skipper's eye is on the mainsail, which is the point of pivoting. Directly the wind is out of it, and it begins to shiver, he yells, Raise tacks and sheets! when except that the foretack is held a bit to prevent the foresail from bellying aback all the remaining ropes that held the ship on her old tack are loosed a roar of wind waves rushes through the sails and a tremor runs through the whole ship from stem to stern the skipper waits for the first decided breath on her new tack and then shouts mainsail haul when the yards come swinging round so quickly that the men can hardly take in the slack of the braces fast enough the scene of orderly confusion is now at its height Every one hauling sings out at the very top of his pipes. The sails are struggling to find their new set home, while the head sheets forward thrash about like men and thump their blocks against the deck with force enough to dash your brains out. Mates and bosun work furiously, for the skipper's eye is searching everywhere, and the skipper's angry words cut the delinquent like the lash of a well-aimed whip. The bosun forward has the worst of it, for the rest of sheets and headsails won't come to trim without a fight when it's breezing up and seas are running. But presently all the yards get rightly trimmed, tacks boarded and bowlines hauled out taut. She's on a bowline taut enough to please the old man now, that is, the ropes leading forward from the middle of the forward edge of every square sail are so straight that she is sailing as near the wind as she can go, and keep a full on. Go below the watch! And the men off duty tramp down, the cook and bosun with their oilies streaming from their scuffle with the flying spray and slapping dollops at the bows. When a quartering trade wind is picked up, sailing is at its easiest, for a well-balanced suit of canvas will keep her bowling along night and day with just the lightest of touches at the wheel. Then is the time to bend her old sails on, for unlike a man a ship puts on her old suit for fair weather and her new suit for foul. 
Then, too, is the time for dog-watch yarning, when pipes are lit without any fear of their having to be crammed half-smoked into the nearest pocket, because all hands are called. Landsmen generally think that most watches aboard a windjammer are passed in yarns and smoking, but this is far from being the case. The mates and skipper keep everybody busy with the hundred and one things required to keep a vessel ship-shape. Painting, graining, brightening, overhauling the weak spots in the rigging, working the bear to clean the deck with fine wet sand, helping whomever is acting as Chips the carpenter, or equally busy sails, or doing Peggy for Slush the cook, who much prefers wet grub to dry, slumgully and coffee to any kind of tea, ready-made hardbread to ship-baked soft, and any kind of stodge to the toothsome delights of dandy-funk and cracker-hash. And all this is extra to the regular routine, with its lamp-lockers, binnacles, time-keeping, incessant lookout, and trick at the wheel. Besides, every man has to look after his own kit, which he has to buy with his own money, and his quarters for which he alone is responsible. So there is never much time to spare, with watch and watch about, all through the voyage, especially when all the ills that badly fed flesh is heir to on board a deep waterman incapacitate some hands, while falls from aloft and various accidents knock out others. The skipper Bosun, cook, steward, chips, and sails keep no watches, and hence are called the idlers, a most misleading term, for they work a good deal harder than their counterparts ashore, though the mates and seamen often work harder still. There are seven watches in a day, reckoned from noon to noon, five of four hours each and two of two hours each. These two, the dog watches, are from four to six and six to eight each afternoon. The crew are divided into port and starboard watches, each under a mate. In Bluenose vessels, the port watch was always called by the old name of Larboard Watch till only the other day. The starboard and larboard got their names because the starboard was the side on which the steering oar was hung before the rudder was invented, and the larboard was the side where the lading or cargo came in. Bluenoses have no use for nippers, as Britishers call apprentices. But if they had, and the reader was a green one, he would just about begin to know the ropes and find his sea-legs by the time that our Victoria had run her southing down to within another day's sail of the foul-weather zone in the roaring forties round the horn, which seamen call Old Stiff. Sails are shifted again, and the best new suit is bent, for the coming gales have a clear sweep from the Antarctic to the stormiest coast of all America, and the enormous grey-backed Cape Horners are the biggest seas in the world. The best helmsmen are on duty now. Not even every Bluenose can steer any more than every Englishman can box or every Frenchman fence. There are a dozen different ways of mishandling a vessel under sail. Let your attention wander and she'll run up into the wind and perhaps get in irons so that she won't cast either way. Let her fall off when you're running free and she'll broach to and get taken aback. Or simply let her yaw about a bit instead of holding true and you'll lose a knot or two an hour. But do none of these careless things, observe all the rules well, and even then you will never make a helmsman unless it's born in you. Steering is blown into you by the wind and soaked into you by the water, and you must also have that inborn faculty of touch which tells you instinctively how to meet a vessel's vagaries, and no two vessels are alike, as well as how to make her fall in love with all the humors of a wayward ocean. The hungry great Antarctic wind comes swooping down. The Victoria lays over to it, her forefoot slashing, her lee side hissing, the windward rigging strained and screaming, and every stitch of canvas drawing full. Still the skipper carries on. He and his vessel have a name to keep up, and he has carried on till all was blue ere this, and left more than one steam kettle panting. 
Every timber, plank, mast, yard, and tackle wakes to new life and thrills in response to the sails. She answers her helm quickly, eagerly. She rides the galloping waters now as you ride her. And as she rises to each fresh wave, you also rise, with the same exultant spring, and take the leap in your stride. The wind pipes up. A regular gale is evidently brewing, and most of the canvas must come off her now, or else she'll soon be stripped of it. "'Stand by your royal halyards!' yells the second mate. "'Let go your royal halyards!' The royals are down for good. The skysails have been taken in before. Another tremendous blast lays her far over, and the sea is a lather of foam to windward. The skipper comes on deck, takes a quick look round, and shouts at the full pitch of his lungs, "'All hands shorten sail!' Up come the other watch in their oilskins, which they have carefully lashed round their wrists and above their knees to keep the water out. Taking in sail is no easy matter now. Everyone tails on, puts his back into it, and joins the chorus of the hard-breathed shanty. The human voices sound like fitful screams of seabirds heard in wild snatches between the volleying gusts, while overhead the sails are booming like artillery as the spilling lines strain to get the grip. Now then, starboard watch, up with your sail and give the larboard watch a dressing down. Yo-ho, yo-hey, yo-ho-oh! Up she goes, a hiss, a crash, a deafening thud, and a gigantic wave curls overhead and batters down the toiling men, who hang on for their lives and struggle for a foothold. Up with you, yells the mate, directly the tangled coil of yellow-clad humanity emerges like a half-drowned rat. Up with you, boys, and give her hell! Yo-ho! To-hey! Yo-ho-har! Turn that! All fast, sir! Aloft and roll her up! Now then, starbo-lines, show your spunk! Away they go, the mate dashing ahead, while the furious seas shoot up vindictive tongues at them and nearly wash two men clean off the rigging on a level with the lower topsails. Out on the swaying yard, standing on the foot-rope that is strung underneath, they grasp at the hard, wet, struggling canvas till they can pass the gaskets round the parts still bellying between the bunt-lines. One hand for the ship and one for yourself is the rule aloft. But exceptions are more plentiful than rules on a day like this. Both hands must be used, though the sail and foot-ropes rack your body and try their best to shake you off. If they succeed, a sickening thud on deck or a smothered scream and a half-heard plop overside would be the end of you. All hands work like fury, for a full Antarctic hurricane is on them. This great south polar storm has swept a thousand leagues almost unchecked before venting its utmost rage against the iron coasts all around the Horn. The South Shetlands have only served to rouse its temper. Its seas have grown bigger with every mile from the pole, and wilder with every mile towards the Horn. Now they are so enormous that even the truck of the tall Yankee clipper staggering along to leeward cannot be seen except when both ships are topping the crest. Wherever you look there seems to be an endless earthquake of mountainous waves with spuming volcanoes of their own and vast abysmal craters yawning from the depths. The Victoria begins to labor. The wind and water seem to be gaining on her every minute. She groans in every part of her sorely racked hull, while up aloft the hurricane roars, rings, and screeches through the rigging. But suddenly there is a new and far more awful sound which seems to still all others, as a stupendous mother wave rears its huge engulfing bulk astern. On it comes, faster and higher, its cavernous hollow roaring, and its overtopping crest snarling viciously as it turns forward, high above the poop. "'Hold on for your lives!' shout the mates and skipper. 
They are not a moment too soon. The sails are blanketed, and the ship seems as if she was actually being drawn stern first into the very jaws of the sea. A shuddering pause, and then, with a stunning crash, the whole devouring mass bursts full on deck. The stricken Victoria reels under the terrific shock, and then lies dead another anxious minute, utterly helpless, her deck awash with a smother of foaming water, and her crew apparently drowned. But presently her stern emerges through the dark, green-gray after-shoulder of the wave. She responds to the lift of the mighty barrel with a gallant effort to shake herself free. She rises, dripping from stem to stern. Her sails refill and draw her on again, and when the next wave comes she is just able to take it, but no more. The skipper has already decided to heave to and wait for the storm to blow itself out, but there is still too much canvas on her. Even the main lower topsail has to come in. The courses, or lowest square sails, have all come in before. The little canvas required for lying to must neither be too high nor yet too low. If it is too high, it gives the wind a very dangerous degree of leverage. If it is too low, it violently strains the whole vessel by being completely blanketed when in the trough of the sea, and then suddenly struck full when on the crest. The main lower topsail is at just the proper height, but only the fore and mizzen ones are wanted to balance the pressure aloft, so in it has to come. And a dangerous bit of work it gives, for it has to be hauled up from right amidships, where the deck is wetter than a half-tide rock. The yellow oil-skinned crew tail on and heave. Yo-ho! Yo-hey! Hitch it! Quick! For your lives! Hang on all! A mountainous wall of black water suddenly leaps up and crashes through the windward rigging. The watch goes down to a man, some hanging on to the rope as if suspended in the middle of a waterfall, for the deck is nearly perpendicular, while the others wash off altogether and fetch up with a dazing underwater thud against the lee side. Inch by inch the men haul in, waist-deep most of the time and often completely under. Yo-ho! Yo-hey! Har! And they all hold breath until they can get their heads out again. Yo-ho! Yo-hey! In with her! Hi, ho, ho! Turn that! All fast! Way aloft and roll her up quick! The tossing crests are blown into spindrift against the weather yardarm, while a pelting hailstorm stings the wet, cold hands and faces. The men tear at the sail with their numb fingers till their nails are bleeding. They hit it, pull it, clutch at it for support. Certain death would follow a fall from aloft, for the whole deck is under a surging, seething mass of water. You would swear the water is boiling if it wasn't icy cold. The skipper's at the wheel, watching his chance. There is no such thing as a good chance now, but he sees one of some kind just as the men get sail on the yard and are trying to make it fast. Down goes the helm, and her head comes slowly up to the wind. She's doing it. No! Hang on all! Great snakes, here comes a sea! Struck full straight on her beam by wind and sea together, the Victoria lays over as if she would never stop. Over she heels to it, over, over, over. A second is a long suspense at such a time as this. The sea breaks in thunder along her whole length and pours in a sweeping cataract across her deck, smashing the boats and dragging all loose gear to leeward. Over she heels, over, over, over. The yards are nearly up and down, the men cling desperately as if to an inverted mast, and well they may, especially on the leeward arm that dips them far under a surge of water which seems likely to snap the whole thing off. But the Victoria's cargo and ballast never shift an inch. Her stability is excellent, 
and as the heaving shoulder eases down she holds her keel in just before another lurch would send her turning turtle. A pause, a quiver, and she begins to write. "'Now, then!' roars the indomitable mate. The moment his dripping yard-arm comes from under. "'Turn to, there! Do you think we're going to hang on here the whole damn day?' Whereupon the men turn to again, with twice the confidence and hearty goodwill that any other form of reassurance could possibly have given them. As she comes back towards an even keel, the wind catches the sails. The skipper is still at the wheel, to which he and the two men whose trick it is are clinging. Hardily! And round she goes this time, till she snuggles into a good lie too, which keeps her alternately coming up and falling off a little by the counteraction of the sails and helm. Here she rides out the storm, dripping her lee rail under, climbing the wild gigantic seas, and working off her course on the cyclone-driven waters, but giving watch and watch about a chance to rest before she squares away again. Next morning the skipper hardly puts his head out before he yells the welcome order to set the main lower topsail, from the lee yard arm of which a dozen men had nearly gone to Davy Jones' locker only yesterday. He takes a look round, then orders up reefed foresail, and the three upper topsails, also reefed. Up goes the watch aloft and lays out on the yard. "'Ready!' comes the shouted query from the bunt. "'Aye, aye, sir! Haul out to windward! A high! Oh-ho! Oh-ho! Oh! Far enough, sir! Haul out to leeward! A high! Oh-ho! Oh-ho! Oh! That'll do! Tie her up and don't miss any points! Right-o! Lay down from aloft and set the sail!' Yo-ho! Yo-hi! Yo-ho-ho! Then the shanty rises from the swaying men, rises and falls in wavering bursts of sound as if the gale was whirling it about. Blow the man down! Blow the man down! Way-ho! Blow the man down! Blow the man down from Liverpool town! Give us some wind to blow the man down! And so the gallant ship goes outward bound and homeward bound the same. At last she's back in Halifax, after a series of adventures that would set an ordinary landsman up for life. But the only thing the Nova Scotian papers say of her is this. Arrived from sea with General Cargo. Ship Victoria, John Smith, Master. Ninety days from Valparaiso. All well. No mention of that terrible Antarctic hurricane? No heroes? No heroics? It's all in the day's work there. End of section 8